0: I thank you for all that you've given us. Uh, I thank you for this church, and I thank you for what you're doing in this church. I thank you for the growth we see in this church. I thank you for the young families that we have in this church, Father. But Father, I pray that you would capture our heart with the gospel to such a degree that we would realize that our money, our resources, our finances, they do not belong to us, that Father, they belong to you. And that we give back out of the overflow of our heart because of what you've done in sending your son Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we deserve, to take our place on a bloody cross so that we could be reconciled with you. And so, Father, I pray that the gospel would reach into our hearts and change us and convict us. Um, I pray that if, if we're just not giving, because, Father, we're, we're overextended, Father, so many young families my age, they're overextended. They're $30,000 millionaires. Father, convict them. Help them to realize that you didn't call us to keep up with the Joneses or to try to impress other people. You called us to stewardship. So, Father, I pray for those convictions. Father, I pray for some of our older saints in here that they would grab some of us young kids, put an arm around us and say, hey, young man, young lady, let me help you. Let me teach you. Let me show you what God has shown us in the scriptures and what he's promised us if we would just give. And so I pray for that conviction, Father, uh, to settle in on some of our folks. Father, you've been good to this church for almost 100 years, and I believe you're going to be good to this church for a lot longer. And so we just ask for your blessing, we ask for your grace, and we ask for your mercy. Be with us now as we open up the scriptures. Use me, uh, help me to um, share the gospel well. That's really what this is about today. Not, not spiritual gifts, but, but Christ. That a truly spiritual person is not gift-centered, but Christ-centered. And so help us to be that today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. First 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I will start in verse 1. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And we've been working our way slowly through the book of 1 Corinthians. And one of the things that that, that continues to pop up over and over and over again in the book is this issue of divisions. So so in chapter one, the Corinthians are fighting over pastors. And so you have some people saying, well, I follow Paul. He was my pastor. I loved him. Others were saying, well, I follow this new guy, Apollos. He's good. That boy can preach. We really like him. Others were saying, well, we follow Peter, right, the Apostle Peter. Even though he'd never been to Corinth, we still follow him. He's our guy. And then there were the really super spiritual people. Remember them? Right? Well, we don't follow pastors. We follow Jesus. He's kind of our guy, right? We're a Jesus guy. And so there were all these divisions taking place over leaders. In chapter 6, they're having divisions over business practices in the church. So they were all getting mad at each other and suing each other like crazy. And so nobody could get along. They're fighting over business issues. In chapter 11, last week, we saw that they were divided over socioeconomic lines, that they're divided over social lines, that the really wealthy and well-to-do in the church were regulating the second-class citizens, the working class, to other rooms in the church. They were pushing them out because of their money. And so Paul must continually draw this group of people back to the unity that's found in the gospel, so over and over again, you'll see him address the problem and then say, now let's look to the cross. Let's look to Jesus. Let's look to the gospel to see how in the church the ground is level, that all of that stuff gets pushed out and we find our unity in Christ. And then we come to chapter 12, and what we're going to see today is yet another division. And this time, it's, it's over the use of spiritual gifts. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at spiritual gifts in the life of the church. And I know there's probably some of you out there that have been going, oh, baby, Like, I can't wait for these sermons. I can't wait to hear what Byron's going to say about these things. I wonder what Joe's got to say about these things. And and what I want to say right up front is that these texts are bound to cause controversy no matter how they're interpreted. Amen? Ever been in that church or you ever been in that study before? Wherever the spiritual gifts are brought up, there's always controversy over the spiritual gifts. So some of you are going to go, well, Byron and Joe took those texts too far. Some of you are going to go, well, they didn't go far enough. And what's important to remember is that these issues are secondary, okay? Spiritual gifts are an open-handed issue. You and I can have discussions about them. We can have arguments about those things, but they are not a closed-handed issue. We will not split over a second-hand issue, right? What is closed-handed is the gospel is that Jesus Christ has stepped down out of heaven, he's lived the life we should have lived, he's died the death we deserved. he's taken our place, he's reconciled us as a group of people, as a body to the Father, and now our unity is found in Christ. It's not found in what we do or our giftedness, it's not found in whether or not you can heal everybody in town or you can't. It's found in Jesus, okay? But, with that being said, I'll, I'll lay my cards on the table for you right up front, all right, So we are Baptists, so you shouldn't come in here going, oh, well, I didn't see that coming. All right? I'm not neutral in how I feel about these things. I, I am the son of a charismatic, full gospel woman preacher. Okay? We can talk about that later, too. Who is also the daughter of two full gospel traveling evangelists. I grew up in a full gospel church, which I still don't know what that means because I didn't hear a whole lot of gospel. I heard a whole lot of other stuff, but not a lot of gospel. But my grandfather, the, the evangelist, had polio when he was a boy, and he claimed that he went to a tent revival and God healed him. Now, it was always bizarre to me that God healed him, but his left hand still drawled up like this, and he can't use it, right? And so when I was a kid, I always was like, oh yeah, God healed him. But then as I got older, I was like, did God like only do like 90%? Like, just left the other 10% to be useless. Like, I don't know if that's how God works, but okay, whatever. Um, But that's how I was raised. And listen, I'm thankful for that. I grew up in a church with my grandmother in Clayton, New Mexico, another full gospel church. I heard the gospel preached there one Halloween evening. God opened my heart. He saved me right there at that church. And so I am forever grateful for that. But, but, but when my dad remarried, we moved and we went to another church in Dalhart and it was the same thing, full gospel church, not a lot of gospel, just a whole bunch of stuff about speaking in tongues and gifts. And the turning point came for me one summer when I'm at church camp at full gospel, at Tri-State Full Gospel Camp in Wyandotte, Oklahoma. Went there every year. I, I Facebooked it the other day, looked it up, had some flashbacks come back, remembering some of those places and, and stuff. It was a great experience. But here's what happened. Every single night, there would be somebody get up and preach, and at the end, they would make a big deal about coming to the altar, and at the altar, there was this huge push for signs and wonders and the miraculous, and we would spend hours upon hours upon hours down there having somebody praying the gift of the Holy Spirit into me, and I remember at the end of my freshman year, I'm going to camp that year, and I'm trying again. You know, They're like, just speak that prayer language, brother. Just speak it. Just speak it. And I'm going, Right? and nothing's coming. And I'm thinking, this must not be my gift, but they're still hammering on me that, oh, you got it. You got it. Come on. Come on. And it just never happened. And so that year of my sophomore year, I was invited to an event at First Baptist Church called Disciple Now. And at that, I went, and there was just something that was different about attending the Baptist church. We had an amazing pastor at the time, a man named Stephen Lowry, and he preached right out of the Bible. He shared the gospel. Uh, and I began to, to, to understand and be taught that the main tenet of, of what Baptists believe is the sufficiency of Scripture. That, that, that scriptures are authority. That scripture speaks to us and that we don't need new revelation, right? You may have heard that in charismatic circles, that there's new revelation. But then when I study the Bible and I see that, that they're very clear that, that, that God has already spoken through his son, Jesus, and that all the revelation I need is found right here, that this is enough for me. And that I don't have to run off and, and chase all these wild and crazy experiences because there's enough for me right here in the pages of scripture, and my world was just completely changed, and from that point on, I was like, I'm all in, right? I joined the Baptist church, I had to get rebaptized. I had an argument with Brother Steve, and Brother Steve was finally like, just drink the water. I was like, okay, I'm in, all right, all right, we're good. So, so when it comes to this subject, listen, I want you to know, that's where I land, all right? And, and, and I always want to fall on what the scripture tells me, not on what I feel, okay? And so, so I think that's a good word before we go into all this. Your feelings will lie to you. And if at any point we read the Bible and go, well, I don't, I don't feel that way. The problem's not the Bible. The problem is you. Okay? The Bible is enough. And so that's where we are going to go over the next few weeks. And so my goal today in these first several verses is I just want to set the stage for what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. Joe's going to take it next week, and he's going to go into some of these gifts, right? Good luck, he gets to talk about prophecy. Woo, what's that mean? Um, But these first verses, Paul just shows us the point and the function of the gifts. And what Paul tells us is that they are not to be used for selfish gain, but for the life of the congregation, So spiritual gifts are given to edify and build up the congregation. They're not for you to use to make much of yourself, okay? So, So look with me, if you will, in chapter 12, we'll look at verses 1 through 3. Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, remember they had written him a letter, and this is his response. So they had most likely asked him about spiritual gifts, and so here's his response. He says, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. So, in the Corinthian church, the division that was beginning to happen over spiritual gifts kind of looked like this, is that there were certain people in the church uh, who had very obvious spiritual gifts. Uh, probably the most obvious spiritual gift are the speaking gifts, right? Being able to get up and teach and preach and explain the Word of God. There's some of you out here that are just really good teachers. You can stand up in a Sunday school class and you can teach God's Word. Some of you are just gifted communicators. You, you may not teach or preach, but, but you have that gift. And so for some reason, these people with those gifts were being looked at and prized, and the other members of the congregation were elevating them over the rest of the congregation. So they were saying, hey, their spiritual gift is better than our spiritual gift or his spiritual gift or her spiritual gift. And the people that were getting elevated, well, what do you think they were doing? They were strutting around the congregation like peacocks, right? They were like, yeah, that's right. Pretty good at this, right? They were probably getting special treatment. They were getting pampered, all because of their gifts. It's sort of like we do in our day and age, right? So so you take certain pastors, maybe megachurch pastors or certain celebrity pastors who have a platform, which that's kind of the thing now. Like every pastor's got to brand himself, right? He's got to have all these Instagram posts. He's got to get followers. He's got to be an influencer. And so we take those guys and we elevate them and we elevate their gifts over other pastors and other other preachers and teachers, right? I see this all the time to where these guys get all the cloud and yet all the while there's faithful local church pastors all over the country in places you've never heard of that are faithfully serving Jesus, preaching week in and week out. They're killing the game, but nobody elevates them, right? That, that's sort of what was going on in Corinth. And so Paul's going to address this. In verse 4, right, we'll get to it, but but really quickly, he says that there's varieties of of gifts. That word gift there is is the Greek word charismata. It's the same word that we get the word grace, charis. So Paul says that, that we need to be aware that spiritual gifts are not innate abilities in which we should admire or elevate a person, but they're donations of free, sovereign grace. So you didn't earn your spiritual gift. You didn't really work your tail off to make your spiritual gift better. It's not like you took your spiritual gift to the weight room and they got stronger. God gave you that gift. And the purpose of spiritual gifts is not that the person would be made much of, but that the giver would be made much of. So the spiritual gift was given so that you would go Thank you, Jesus, for this, and in turn, turn many people back to Jesus, not to yourself. And so Paul tells them, we're going to address spiritual gifts. And In verse 2, he says, hey, before the gospel came in and shaped your heart, before Jesus saved you, you were a bunch of wild pagans. That's what you were. You were separated from God. You had no hope. Paul says you worshiped mute or deaf or maybe your translation says you worshiped dumb idols. I like that one better, right? It it can't talk, it can't speak, it can't move. It's dumb. You worshiped that before you knew Jesus. You worshiped the false god. And if you do any studying and, and any uh, like history work on, on the Greco-Roman um, mystery religions, you'll know that they were marked by these really strange phenomena, these weird displays of power, these bizarre spiritual experiences where some really wicked, weird, depraved things took place. Right? Kind of like a lot of worship services now in modern churches, Right? Dim the lights, dramatic music, smoke machines, lasers, right? Try to evoke emotion, try to evoke an experience out of the whole deal. And the Corinthians had wrongly believed that in the Christian life, like the mark of true spirituality were these really intense emotional experiences. That, that you, weren't, you weren't really connecting with the Lord unless you had this really deep, intense experience where it's the last night of church camp and you're just boohooing at the altar. Like, that's the mark of spirituality. I'll never forget being at this camp one year and these kids down at the front and um, all of a sudden these kids start laughing at the camp. Like, this just really freaky, creepy, ha, like, laughs. And they did it all night long. So, so they go back to the dorms. They're laughing. They're in their rooms. And all night long, you hear this laughter coming from upstairs. Well, the next morning, we, we get up and we go to the tabernacle. And I remember the speaker getting up going, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We had, a, we had a fire of the Holy Spirit last night, right? Came down. And these kids had the Holy Ghost laughter is what they called it. And I remember going, I don't think that was the Holy Ghost, man. That was creepy. So so remember, the Holy Spirit is a spirit. He ain't the only one. What, What I saw take place that night was demonic. But it was under the guise of Christianity and spirituality. And so people thought, hey, we had an experience because we laughed all night long. Folks, I'm sorry. Once again, I go back to my word and I'm like, I've never seen Holy Ghost laughter in the Bible anywhere. Where where do I find that God does those things? But because they had that experience, then all of a sudden they've connected with the Lord. All of a sudden they had this, this true spirituality. And so what Paul says is, hey, listen, when you were pagans, before you knew Jesus, you were led astray. Right? You were, you were running around saying, Jesus is a curse, right? We don't want to follow Jesus. But then Paul says in, in verse three, and, and notice what he does. One pastor said that Paul goes from using knowing he uses knowing words, not feeling words. And Paul says that authentic spirituality engages the brain. True spirituality is not irrational, but rational. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 what does it say do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the what renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good what is acceptable what is perfect so paul's telling them in verse 3 use your brains Authentic spirituality, it's not irrational or anti-intellectual, but rather the engagement of our brains directed by the teaching of the Word of God. Folks, Christianity is not a dumb religion. Sadly, in a lot of circles, we've dumbed it down, and we've made it all about heart, and all about emotion, and all about feelings, and we've disconnected our brain from what the Bible teaches. We've disconnected ourselves and say, well, I just don't want to study doctrine or theology, Right? I will give you a great example. I had a buddy this week. He 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 had a he told me he's like, "Yeah, man, we we are Baptists, and we love being Baptist, but we just we just don't want to teach Baptist doctrine." Okay. So, I said, "What what do you even mean by that?" I mean, explain to me. If you what what do you mean by that? What, you just you, you know, we just, just we're just Christians first. Okay. But again, I go back to the tenet of Baptist theology is the sufficiency of scripture. You can't go wrong. That is not a bad thing to believe in. But we've disconnected that, is that we think that doctrine is such a bad word. And what Paul's saying is engage your brains. See, the center of authentic spirituality is not self, but Christ. It's not your feelings or your experiences, it's Jesus. So Paul says, when you were pagans, you ran around saying Jesus is cursed. You didn't love him, you didn't want to be ruled by him, you rejected him. But now that you've been saved by him, you joyfully say Jesus is Lord. And what Paul says is the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to say with all of our hearts that Jesus is Lord. See, no one can truly bend the knee to Jesus unless the Holy Spirit has erupted into their lives, unless the Holy Spirit has come in and changed them. So the mark, Paul says, of true spirituality is not giftedness, but Christ-centeredness. The person who's been so radically changed by Jesus that they now say, my life isn't about me, it's not about drawing attention to myself, but my life is now to make much of Jesus and to lift Jesus high everywhere I go. See, that's the primary job of the Holy Spirit, is it not? It's to shine the light on Jesus. It's to take it off of us and put it on him. 1 Corinthians 12.3, this is the New Living Translation, okay? I know, you know, I'm a little scared about doing it too, but listen, it makes so much more sense. He says, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Notice at the beginning, in the end of the verse, Paul mentions the Spirit, and who's smack dab in the middle of that? Jesus. It's Christ-centeredness. The Holy Spirit is always seeking to turn our attention away from ourselves and turn it on to Jesus. J.I. Packer was very helpful in this. He says the Holy Spirit will do three things. First, it leads us to personal fellowship with Jesus. So the truly spiritual person is about knowing Jesus. The truly spiritual person is about having fellowship with Jesus. Second, it leads to personal character transformation. Transformation into the likeness of Jesus. So the truly spiritual person is about more than just a wonderful quiet time with Jesus. Those are all important. But the truly spiritual person is about reflecting Jesus' character to the world. And third, the Spirit gives certainty of being loved, redeemed, and adopted through Jesus. So the Holy Spirit always reminds us that Jesus did the work. That Jesus saved us. That Jesus redeemed us. That Jesus' righteousness was enough for you and I. That when we sin, God doesn't want to destroy us, but instead, he wants us to run to him because of the finished work of Jesus was enough. The Holy Spirit's the one that's always saying, look to Jesus, remember Jesus. It ain't about you, it's about Jesus. And he does that all the time. That your life is now centered on Christ. So folks, listen to this. Spiritual giants of the faith, they aren't people who run around speaking in weird tongues or healing people or coming to the front and pushing them over, right? And covering them up with a sheet. True spiritual giants are tiny people who live to display how great Jesus is. That's a true spiritual giant. Verse 4. Now there's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, all right? So there's a variety of gifts. Remember that, that word is, is, is the word grace. That the spiritual gifts are really just grace gifts. And then Paul says there's a, there's a variety of them. And he doesn't give us an exhausted list. Again, Joe will get into some of this next week. But as you go through the scriptures, you'll never find a complete list of gifts. In fact, most commentators will tell you there's not a complete list because he didn't want us to get hung up on what the right gift is. He just wanted us to love Jesus and serve. But Paul says there's a variety of grace gifts. Gifts are given things. They are not merited things. Okay. One more time, gifts are given things, they are not merited things. And honestly, I think that like, if you really think about it, we struggle in our society, especially in our Western culture, to understand a true gift. We understand the language of gift, but we don't understand gift. Most gifts are given because of an achievement, right? We, we live in a meritocracy. You've earned it, so here, now get a gift. So kids receive gifts at Christmas, why? Why? You were a good boy all year. You've earned it. Here's your your gift. We just got done with graduation. and, And if you're like me, you finally got your gift to the kid before they left, right? The last week of summer. Well, why are we giving kids graduation gifts? Well, way to go, buddy. You survived high school. Woo! Here you go. Here's the gift. I'd be giving the principal's administrator's gifts, not the kid, all right? Gifts are given to mark occasions of social advancement. So you think weddings, you think of promotion, you think of retirement. They're, they're given to mark those, those things. Even, um, even, even when gifts, uh, even what gifts we give are marked by performance, right? Have you ever bought somebody something and you go, oh, I really hope they like it? Like you get so worried that they're not going to like what you've given them? Maybe you're a, you're, a, you're a husband and wife in here, and have you ever been let down because you think, man, I bought her a really nice gift. She got me another tie. Great. Anybody? Come on boy, I bought him a real nice watch and all he did was get me a new vacuum cleaner. Way to go, honey. Plugs in. We can even take gifts back if we don't like it. We can trade them in for something else. So when a true gift is given, which doesn't happen often, it's a very rare and beautiful thing, isn't it? Now, I've shared this story before, but, but, but our van was just given to us by some stranger. I, I don't know the person. I probably never get to meet the person. As far as I know, I don't think I merited that, right? I mean, I don't think you, you merit that by having, like, bad genetics, do you? I mean, that was a good joke. Come on. I don't, I don't think I, I merited that. It was just a kind stranger, out of the goodness of their heart, gifted me with something, Right? It's a very rare and beautiful thing. And so in verse four, that's what Paul says. He says, these are are gifts of grace. They're given by God freely. And so since they've been given freely, you don't get to run around and brag and boast about the gift that was freely given to you. And then verse five and six, Paul gives us some very, very deep theology. Look at verse five and six again. And he says, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there's a variety of activities, but it's all the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So what Paul does right here is he points us to the unity and the diversity found not in the body of Christ, right, which we have a diversity out here, and the unity is on Christ and his cross, but he's not talking about that. He's talking about the unity and the diversity that's found in the Trinity, So he says there's different gifts, there's different service, there's different ministries, there's different activities we are all to be engaged in, and they all come from the same source, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Paul says that God acts unitedly in the Trinity, giving gifts to the whole church, right? So don't blow this off, okay? We tend to act like, well, the Trinity is important, but gosh darn, it's just too hard to understand, and it's just not very practical for my life. But listen, it's very practical for your life, and it's important. So, so brothers, sisters, engage your brains, okay? It's what Paul's telling us to do. Here we go. Paul just said that all the gifts are given are given as a unified work of the triune God. So any work performed by any person of the Trinity in the Scripture is at the same time the work of all three, But sometimes the work of all three persons is assigned to one person. But that doesn't mean that the others are excluded. All right? You with me? Okay. All the works of God are done by all that God is all the time. So, so here's what we do. We sometimes speak as the Father, as the one who creates. We speak as God the Son, as the Redeemer, and we speak of the Holy Spirit as Sanctifier. And hear me, that is all good, correct, true biblical language, and we should speak that way. But whenever we say that, we have to at the same time acknowledge that God the Son is creator and sanctifier as well, that the Spirit is creator and sanctifier, that the Father is redeemer and sanctifier. So all the works of God are performed by all the persons of God indivisibly and yet in such a way that the distinctiveness of each person is preserved and upheld in a beautiful, profound mystery of the unity of the one and three and the three in one. Now here's why it matters, okay? That, that wasn't just so you could go wow your friends at Brook Street today, okay? Which you should, right? Some of them need good theology. If the God who gives gifts for Christian service is diverse, yet one... Right? Three distinct persons in one being forever, if that's who he is. So, if that's the God who gives these gifts, Paul's teaching us that there is no possible way that we, the recipients of these gifts, can use them in a way for self exaltation, for self glory, to make much of ourselves to the exclusion of others. That if the church is to mirror the unity and diversity of the God that redeemed us, then the way we use our gifts for service will promote unity in our diversity. It'll bring us together instead of singling individuals out for particular attention and particular praise. It will cement our relationships as we serve each other according to the pattern of the Lord Jesus, who did what? We read about it. Came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See what Paul just did there? He said, Man, you want to learn humility? Come over to the edge of the canyon and just look off into the chasm and see how small you really are. See, when you do that, Paul says you can't help but take the gifts that God's given you and use them. And he tells you what they're used for in verse 7. What's he say? Each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. For the good of the body of Christ. It's not just for you as an individual to have some strange, bizarre experience, right, speaking in some tongue that nobody knows about. It's for the good of the body of Christ. So, so let's get practical. Truly spiritual people are not gift-obsessed, but Christ-centered. So you won't find a truly spiritual person in a classroom taking some spiritual gifts inventory, right? You remember those? They were almost like you would find in the back of Tiger Beat or 17 Magazine, right? And you were like, oh, yeah. Yeah, and at the end you're like, I'm an otter, or I'm a seal, or I'm a a mountain lion. Like, that's my spiritual gift. You remember those? Maybe y'all have never done those. I've done those. They're weird, okay? All right? No, Christ-centered people, they're service-minded. They're service-minded. So hear me on this, all right? Brothers and sisters, listen to this. Christ-centered people don't sit around going, Boy, that sure is a need in the church, but not my gift. (laughs) Uh, Somebody else can do that. No. Christ-centered people say, you know, I see that need, and I don't know what I can do, and I don't know if I can make a difference, but I'm willing to serve. How can I help? And they will throw themselves at opportunities and needs. And listen, they'll seek to serve and do good for the entire body, and as they do so, guess what happens? It's cool. All of a sudden, their giftings become discerned. Their giftings aren't discerned by going, oh, let's take the spiritual gifts inventory. They're only discerned by serving. Right? I'm I'm gonna give you a great example, okay? And I hope it hurts your feelings. Here we go, all right? Children's church. I got the same five people for the last three years doing children's church. They're wore out, they're tired. If we would just quit looking at that and going, oh, boy, that's a need. I really need somebody to do that. No, 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 no. There's enough families in here that if we'd all sign up, you'd only have to do it once a year. You ever thought about that? But so many of us would just go, well, that's really not my gift, right? I mean, 30 kids in a room all by myself for 45 minutes, that's not my gift, right? It ain't Kim Brock's gift either. I guarantee you that. (laughs) And he tolerates it. You see what I'm saying? Is that if we would just say, I see that need, I can help in that area, our spiritual gifts would be discerned. So since gifts are given for the common good, in verse 11, right, and I won't steal Joe's thunder, they'll tell us that that we all have a spiritual gift, or guess what, some of you have spiritual gifts. You have multiple. Since that's true, every one of us is called into ministry. All of us. So it means if you're a believer, you don't get to sit on your blessed assurance and do nothing. You're called into ministry. You have a role to play. You're valuable to the body of Christ. It goes back to what we say all the time. When you're not here, you hurt the body of Christ. Well, why do you hurt the body of Christ? Because you're called to be a minister, and as we come together and as we work as one, then we fulfill our mission statement, right? So what's our mission statement? We say it every week. We want to fulfill the great commission in the spirit of the great command. So we want to go into spearmen, Right and beyond spearmen, so that we can tell people about Jesus, have them come to know Jesus, be baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and become disciples of Jesus Christ. And how do we want to do that? We want to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to look to Jesus in what he's done. We want to remember the gospel and have that take us over so that the overflow of that is serving our neighbors, loving our neighbors, telling them about Jesus. And it's a great statement, right? I'm pretty proud of that one. I stole it from somebody, but I'm still proud of it. But listen, we're never going to get it done if we think doing ministry happens in meetings. Yes, meetings are important. Had a big one this morning. But you're not doing ministry by just voting I. Ministry is what happens when you sit in your mess clinging to Jesus with all you have with somebody else in their mess, pointing them to Jesus with all that you have. It's whenever you sit with somebody and you say, man, I don't, I don't know if it's gonna be okay, but let me, let me show you the hope and the encouragement I found in the gospel. And you're opening the scriptures with them and you're spending time with them and you're growing with them and you're pointing them to Jesus. That's when ministry happens. So when I ask you if you serve, don't be like, well, I serve on the van committee. All right? Yeah, yeah, that's great, but most of the committees you Baptist serve on only meet once a year, if that. That's not ministry. Whose life are you speaking into? Who are you walking with day after day and pointing them to Jesus. I said it in my prayer earlier, but we need some of you older folks to grab some of these knuckle-headed kids and say, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about stewardship. Let me show you about commitment to a local church. They need to be taught those things. They need to be shown those things. See, ministry's about people and service. It's not about busyness. And so over the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about spiritual gifts. And all of us have been given gifts by the Holy Spirit. Some of us are using those and making a difference for the kingdom. Many of us are being selfish. We're withholding our gifts. And this church will never be all that it's supposed to be if that continues to be your attitude. So the call today and the call over the next few weeks will be to a spiritual unity that's focused on Jesus, the gift giver, and not on ourselves. So as we get our eyes off of Jesus... And as we get off of ourselves and get them on Jesus, we can't help but serve one another. We can't help but love others and give ourselves for others because our great God served us by giving his life as an atonement for our sins. So First Baptist Church, when we do that, we can expect God to do great things in our church and you will see FBC spearmen fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Command. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would take our eyes off of ourselves and we would get them on you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict. Today, Father, in in, in several areas, I pray that that you would convict us over our our finances and over our tithing and realize that that what we're doing and robbing you is sinful and wrong. Let's start there. But second, Father, that you would convict us where we're not using our gifts to better further the kingdom, where we're not using our gifts to bring about a unity here in the body of Christ. Father, I pray that if there's anyone in here that, 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 that just won't serve, out of selfishness or stubbornness, that today you crack their hearts, Father, and you change them and you convict them and you get them to see what you did for us through your life, your death, your resurrection, and that would melt them and change them and that, Father, they would jump in. Who knows where that is, but they would make a difference. Father, I love you. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for what he's done for us. I pray that we be a church that be all about Jesus that we lift Jesus high, that we be Christ-centered in all that we do and say. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand.